Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's Uli Bear's Think About It. On the podcast, Uli interviews all kinds of interesting people about all kinds of interesting things. He has three series that I'd highly recommend, one on free speech, another on great books, and finally, one on affirmative action. You can find Think About It on Apple Podcasts, or you can just go to Uli's website, which is ulrichbear.com. That's U-L-R-I-C-H-B-A-E-R.com. And you can download or listen to episodes there. We think this is a terrific podcast. In fact, it's so terrific that we're going to offer you a little taste of it. The episode you're about to hear is from Think About It, and I hope you enjoy it. Claude Lévi-Strauss's Tristropique, Sad Tropics is one of the great books of the 20th century. Intellectually bold, morally capacious, and aiming to understand nothing less than the elemental workings of the human mind. Ostensibly a travelogue and ethnographic account of a European's fieldwork among indigenous peoples in mid-20th century Brazil, it is a work of impassioned curiosity, and even though it's a pessimistic diagnosis of the damage humans, especially Europeans, have inflicted on the planet, it's also brimming with hope. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Bear. So, welcome, Denis. First of all, I'm sitting here with Denis Ollier, who is professor of French. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. My pleasure, Ollier. Very nice to be here. <laughs> so, Denis, you've written and edited books on Georges Bataille, on Léris, on Camus, on Sartre, on this whole mid-century and all the way into the present. You've edited a new history of French literature. You've written an introduction for Bataille for the Gallimard edition. You've edited the Playard edition of Léris. So, you're very familiar with these giants of intellectual life in France in mid-century, right? Yeah, that's a very crowded uh, <laughs> moment yeah, yes, it's a, of, of, of monuments. Yeah. A, a lot of mountaintops, yeah. right? A lot of high mountains, yeah. right? And, and I remember that you assigned me an essay when I was in graduate school in comparative literature on the incest taboo from Levi-Strauss' book, The Elementary Structures of Kinship. And I remember reading these, this essay and you know, it was a text out of anthropology. We were reading philosophy, literature, poetry, plays, films, all sorts of things. But it was unusual. And then it opened up this entire world of Levi-Strauss as one of the great giants of reshaping how we think in the 20th century. Well, that's a good point of departure. Does everything start with the taboo of incest? To start with, I would say that, you know, the the question of incest and literature was 
thanks to Levi Strauss, dealt with by Bart when he wrote on Racine. You know, the the sur Racine by Bart was attacked, among other things, because he would dare to go back to ethnographic models while reading literature, 17th century literature. Mm-hmm. But you know, Phaedra is a question of incest. I mean, that goes also with the, the, the way, you know, Lévi-Strauss said, you know, it's always very difficult. I mean, there is a lot of definitions of incest, since Hippolyte is not really the son of Phaedre, but the son of uh, her husband. And mm-hmm. so there is no blood relationship But it is nevertheless incest, yeah. And this, as Racine, is one of the great cultural touchstones of French cultural literature. So Roland Barthes reads this through the lens of an ethnographer who studied so-called primitive tribes, which he didn't mean in a disparaging way, in Brazil, in the, in the rainforest, in the plateaus, in the 30s. And so he uses some knowledge from this completely different field to understand one of the great achievements of French literature and culture. I think that's precisely, you know, you, you, you can wonder how come something as specialized as ethnography in the sense of it is dealing with societies which are, you know, unknown from the general public. And Lévi-Strauss somehow made, uh, created a, a bridge between those two worlds, the world of philosophy. I mean, the story of Lévi-Strauss is very interesting. It's uh, he's maybe one of the most obvious cases, but a lot of philosophers in France, people who were formed as philosophers, once they got their, their diplomas, just wanted to get out of philosophy and to get an object. And Lévi-Strauss was one of those, you know, he was a, a philosopher He knew Sartre as a student, he knew Simone de Beauvoir as a student. It, that was all the same group, but he didn't want to stay in philosophy. And he didn't have any idea that he would end up as an ethnographer. But a series of biographical events you know, brought him to, to Brazil and coming back to Brazil to... Yeah, start to be connected with, you know, that huge reserve of mankind, you know, which are the uh, the Indians of the of the Amazon, and that's how he became. You know, he found an object <laughs> which allowed him to not what he would say to to leave to break out of the narcissism of philosophy, and that's a discourse. Yeah. He knew Simone de Beauvoir, Merleau-Ponty, Simone Weil. They went to school together. Yeah. He knew Sartre, of course, very well. What do you think was his problem with philosophy? Why not become a philosopher? You're so gifted. You do so well. You're surrounded by these brilliant people. So was he looking for an object or was he frustrated that philosophy wasn't? I think, I mean, there are some negative and some positive. The negative was that somehow philosophy was simply dealing with texts. And there was also something kind of repetitive, you know, the same problems, you right. know, the mind-body relations, whatever, uh, the, you know, existence of God. Right. Truth. That's <laughs> truth, yeah. So that's the negative. And the positive was precisely the need. I mean, it was a word that, you know, in the 30s was very, very important. 
He wanted something concrete. He mm -hmm. wanted an object which was not somehow pre-digested, mm -hmm. uh, like, you know, philosophical objects are, are always. And therefore, you know, that the strangeness, strangeness of those uh, rules, you know, that he discovered in those uh, Brazilian Indian societies, you know, was really the discovery of the... Um, of the concrete. Yeah. Right. And as you said, he he got to Brazil by some kind of accidents nearly. He was a little bored. He got an appointment to teach sociology in Sao Paulo. Mm -hmm. And then he took off from there to study sort of Indian tribes in the hinterlands of Brazil. But this wasn't totally unknown. Michel Leris went to this Djibouti uh, Dakar exhibit, wrote L'Africa Fantôme, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, Gide had written on Africa. So there was also an interest already in other cultures, right? In non-Western cultures. Of course, yeah. Okay. Those are three different cases, nevertheless. Yeah. Leris... But, you know, it all starts, nevertheless, with uh, some kind of accidental way. You know, Liris was part of that uh, mission, Dakar Djibouti, but he never had any idea that he would become an ethnographer. Uh, he was vaguely interested, you know, in African art, but very, very superficially, essentially, and I think that's also at the core of Lévi-Strauss' de decision, is he was at odds with his own civilization, with Paris, with there was, you know, a kind, maybe adolescent, you know, a young man, resistance to the integration into a culture he found, you know, there was various levels, affectively, intellectually, unappealing. Mm -hmm. And so there is uh, the myth, the desire, uh, you know, it, it is a, the voyage, the desire to be elsewhere was uh, there prior to the desire to find an object, which, right. uh, about which I was talking earlier. Yeah. And so he goes to Brazil in the 30s and does some expeditions and in Tristropique, which is a very strange book because it's a book of philosophy, of ethnography, a travel memoir, some fiction in it. He mm -hmm. actually scrambles the timeline. So he talks about in 1940, he leaves France again. He's exiled. Mm -hmm. He has to escape from the Nazis to survive. And he mm -hmm. goes to Brazil, then, then New York, or Martinique, then New York. But then when he goes to Brazil the first time, as you said, he discovers an object. And the object is something that these people he studies for a bit reveal to him, this what he then writes ultimately these elementary structures. So they, they teach him something or they allow him to think in a way, as you said, that in Paris he really didn't seem so capable of finding there. Yes. I mean, when he first arrives in... Uh, I mean, there is also an important model in, in Lévi-Strauss, which is America is for him a place which has been undiscovered. Like, he's always fantasizing to be the first non-American to right. step on in America. I mean, like, it is a kind of repetition of the first time. Right. And so the, so his first impression is, uh, I think it was uh, in Rio, it was an experience of modernity. You know, Rio was just, you know, I mean, modernity, but modernity already dilapidated. Mm -hmm. He has that kind of, uh, he's a great writer, and when he describes his first contact, he's kind of, he discovered modernity in Rio, 
But it was a modernity rusted, you know, and uh, yeah, which was not. So he, he has that sense of temporality. And then he's, in that sense, you know, Levi Strauss is a kind of anti modernist. And then he discovers those Indians, and here he has the feeling, kind of a Rousseauist feeling, of discovering a society. I mean, he claims that he was the first one to encounter them, and probably the last one, hein, because right. think that they are going to be eliminated by the, the historical development. And so he has the feeling of saying society at its birth, society... You know, as the very moment of the shift from nature to culture, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, the blooming of a bud, you know, like uh, that fantasy of that instance where nature becomes culture. Yeah. And as you said, he already sees it. I mean, it is these amazing passages and they're very Proustian. He sees, oh. he sees himself seeing, he sees things he's seen before. Sometimes he goes and recalls the French landscape of his childhood in the middle of the Amazonian mm -hmm. rainforest, and he sort of sees these things layered. And as you said, the beginning of what we call cultural civilization, people have to develop these what he calls structures, and then also he sees the end already. He sees in the end not just of these people, but mm -hmm. as you said, there's an anti-modern... So it's a European who arrives... It's interesting, we're, we're both in America, we're both from Europe, but there's this kind of amazing pathos of what America could be, could be. still uninhabited in a way for him. It's the new world, and he said, but we'll never again find a new world. We found it, and we've already wasted this chance. Waste, yeah. The theme, I mean, in rereading uh, some Levi-Strauss yesterday, I thought there is something in fact, very contemporary, there is something very deeply ecological in uh, Levi-Strauss' worldview. And there is always the idea that Europe, or maybe the West, but he says Europe, dumped its waste on the rest of the world, that the rest of the world is kind of the garbage of the West. And what's moved him in seeing that Indian tribe is precisely, let's say, a non-European already contaminated by the cosmic uh, disaster that the West brought to the planet. It's interesting reading it today when we talk about climate change mm -hmm. and ecology mm -hmm. that he says the world has basically already been ruined by Europe. Yeah. Europe's excess is yeah. you travel as far as you can. You try to see untouched nature. And what you see is the garbage of culture. So there's two parts to it that he doesn't think of the, the Indians in the rainforest as pure, untouched, and therefore in some way sacred or better than us, but he says they allow us to see who we are. Mm -hmm. So I think yeah. this is a major part that he reflects back constantly in what is Europe. Mm -hmm. Although he knows he's coming with this idea, he could try yeah. to touch, find something that will ne no one ever see again. There's this kind of dis this explorers or discoverers. Idea. Yeah, that, you know, that's one of the last uh, words in uh, Triste Tropique. He 
opposes two types of society. And of course, you know, everybody in mean, Europe cannot conceive of non-European society unless having, you know, models of cruelty and in particular cannibalism. And so Europe is projecting on other society an anthropophagy as a model. But Europe itself is anthropemi, and em means you know, to vomit. And Europe has been, it is, it is a society that has been vomiting all his mm -hmm. Yeah, excess on the rest of the world. Yeah. And in this other word that you just referred to in this last incredibly lyrical page of this yeah. book, he also says it shouldn't be anthropology, but entro entropy. Entropy. Entropy, yeah. which is stasis, because uh -huh. he, this is the end of the book, he says, there will be no progress. Uh -huh. There's no hope that things will get better and that we will go and bring civilization to these people who we've already ruined and ruined ourselves. Mm -hmm. What's amazing about this book, these incredibly moving passages when he arrives somewhere. Yeah. And then at the same time, he says, we will learn nothing. We will make things worse everywhere we go. Yeah. Everywhere we arrive, we will make things go, which is also unusual for a refugee who survives, comes to America, makes it here, studies up the street, New York Public Library. But there's no optimism in a sense that this will be the way culture will proceed, right? There is absolutely no optimism in, in Lévi-Strauss. <laughs> and I would say he's not even pessimist. He's too neutral to be really pessimist. But, you know, I mean, that there is, I am thinking here about the big controversy he had with Sartre when he wrote La Pensée Sauvage. I forgot how, what the English title. Maybe the, un, uh, I don't know, the untamed mind or yeah. sort of the, uh, yeah, it's yeah, untamed or it's, no one knows how to really do it. The yeah, uncivilized <laughs> wild mind. <laughs> And in which, you know, that, that's the beginning of his this series of work on, on, on mythology. Yeah. And he has that idea. I mean, the big opposition at this time for him is between what he calls cold society and hot societies. Here we are again in uh, the question of entropy, you know. And primitive or non-European uh, non societies are what he calls cold society, which means societies that refuse history. And so those are societies where I mean, they, they don't valorize conflict. And Europe is on the contrary, the model of hot society, I mean, the Western world, which is the cult of history. And so what's very interesting is, you know, it was at the time there was a big debate between structure and history, you know, between historians and structuralists. And at the time where Sartre wrote La Critique de la Raison Dialectique, uh, where, you know, there, it's all big inter interpretation of, of, of history. And I always found it very interesting. I don't know if it is true, but very poetic and very uh, interesting. The idea that primitive societies are societies that knowingly rejected history. <laughs> And they prefer myth to history. And then, you know, the, what, what he says about the other societies, or the Western society, is that, in fact, the thing that history is different from myth, but in fact, 
history is their myth. They, you know, we live in a Sartre, I mean, but Sartre just, you know, expresses kind of a, you know, a kind of lieu commun. We believe in history as something which allows us to go away from the primitive myths. But in fact, it is our myth, which is a myth that conflict is better than structure. Yeah. Mm. And so I always found very interesting and you know, so, some disciple, sort of disciple of Levi Strauss, continued that idea with an interpretation of, of the potlatch, which is, you know, that gift ceremony in, in the Northwest uh, Pacific Indian. And Godelier, who is uh, you know, that, uh, that anthropologist who was a student of, of Levi Strauss, says that the function of the potlatch is to destroy the surplus production in order not to accumulate a capital. That it is a, con it is a you know, a conscious or unconscious, but it is a choice of not entering history, mm -hmm. uh, not building a capital. Everything, mm -hmm. you know, every year has to be destroyed, you know. Yeah. An interesting idea. It's, it is not an idea we would comprehend really to think you you destroy or give away deliberately with nothing to gain from so it doesn't accumulate that's and store it is yeah but it has it but is it is interpreted as you know an institution that prevents accumulation yeah and as you said levi strauss thought this is as valid a way of being in the world and in and making sense of the world right so there was an idea that the idea of history we are We are more advanced. We actually have history. They, yeah. just, ha they just have myth. Yeah. But I think yeah. with Lévi-Strauss, and as you started out by saying about Roland Barthes, myth becomes something very powerful, very necessary, and he says we all participate in it. It's not fairy tales and fictions that are sort of on the side, but this is how human, the human mind really works. And this, I think, is interesting when you said when it started with Roland Barthes, and I want to get back to some, something you said about Rousseau. But that myth can be so important that it's one of the basic structures of how we operate and how we become human in the world. Okay, that's, yeah, that's so the, the myth in, in Levi-Strauss and, you know, the relationship, for example, I mean, uh, Levi-Strauss did not approve of Barthes using him uh, <laughs> right. in reading uh, Racine. <laughs> and uh, because for him, myth is... Uh, unconscious mm -hmm. it's uh, no you it's something what what the, finally what the definition of myth in levi strauss i was reading something yesterday but, uh, which is at the beginning of the structure elementaire de la parenté his first book and there is a kind of reflection about what language is um, and essentially he says that language is by definition, that the very definition of language, translatable, which means that there is no first language. <laughs> there is no, the, the question of the origin of language in, uh, in Lévi-Strauss, which is very important and reappears, but it, it's not at all the, like the invention of a language. It is a kind of a mutation, a mutation where languages... The there is no language if, if there are not two languages. There mm -hmm. is no, the idea of one original language is uh, totally opposed to the vision of Levi-Strauss. Mm -hmm. 
For, for him, uh, and that's why, you know, the, the origin of language is not at all like uh, a poetic inspiration, you know, it like a, or, or the gift of God to one individual. <laughs> it is more like something almost geological that appeared at diver, di different places in the, in the world. But it's a nice contrast. In the West, we have this idea of poetic inspiration, which is how we are in touch with the divine, with the transcendent mm -hmm. order. And there's a poet, there's Homer, there's Sappho, mm -hmm. there's Shakespeare, there's yeah. Hölderlin, there's Racine. But he said there is no such thing. It is, it is, we are also not, we're not in touch with something greater. We as beings, it comes and then we participate in it. It's almost as if languages exist and we participate in them. So it flips this idea of there's a one poet who gives us access to the divine. Which is why, you know, the, I mean, uh, those four volumes of mythologic uh, are, you know, very complicated. And I read them at the time. But the model of the myth is that the, the definition of a myth that it can be transformed, translated. Uh, there is, there are mi mirrors everywhere Without, without any subject. There is no origin. There is no expressivity. The myth is essentially a kind of classification, a syntax. It is a syntax close to what Saussure would call la langue. It's not a parole. It's not a speech. Is it close to what Chomsky has an idea, that there's a grammar? Because there's a moment when Lévi-Strauss says myth operate in and on human minds. It's not that humans access a myth and then tell a story that becomes a myth. They say the myth is there, is there. and we put ourselves in it. And as you said, we can change it. We mm. can revise it. It becomes used. It, sometimes they become less useful. They get revised and changed around. In Lévi-Strauss, there, you know, there is a positivistic aspect of Lévi-Strauss. I think that it's all linked to the evolution, to the to the brain, to the you know. It's, it has nothing to do with feelings. It mm -hmm. has essentially to do with the structure of the cell uh, of the cells in the brain, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's like that idea that languages appear everywhere at the same time. The same for writing, where you know, writing appears. He says, you know, in, in that period, which is end of the Neolithic, but at various places, he never... So there is no the Sumerians, or this is the first it's hieroglyphs the first, with cave no. drawings. He, none of these origin myths really interest him in this no. way. I want to go to this yeah. one passage on Rousseau, uh -huh. which is quite interesting because he's so inspired by Rousseau yeah. in the end of the book. And I'll read this one passage to you um, where he says, the study of these savages leads to something other than the revelation of a utopian state of nature or the discovery of the perfect society in the depth of the forest. It helps us to build a theoretical model of human society, which does not correspond to any observable reality but with the aid of which we may succeed in distinguishing between, and now he quotes Rousseau, second time in the book, what is primordial and what is artificial in man's present nature, and in obtaining a good knowledge of a state, 
which no longer exists, which has perhaps never existed, and which will probably never exist in the future, but of which it is nevertheless essential to have a sound conception in order to pass valid judgment on our present state. Mm -hmm. The end of the quote from Rousseau. Mm -hmm. So he uses this idea that he'll discover this culture in the forest, and he goes on this trek, this kind of dangerous, really, in sort of heart of darkness, like Conradian journey, mm -hmm. finds these people who are abandoning their forest dwelling, will now enter civilization. He knows they will basically die. Their, their, their way of life will be lost forever. But he says this will allow us to have a conception, a theoretical model to think about who we are. Because he says on the same page, it is the not that our own society is peculiarly, peculiarly or absolutely bad, but it's the only one from which we have a duty to free ourselves. We are, by definition, free in relation to the others. Mm -hmm. He's totally free in relation because he can't understand them. He doesn't speak the language. He has no idea how they structure yeah. their lives. Yeah. But it allows him to distance himself from himself. Yeah. So he has to go all the way into the Amazonian rainforest yeah. to find out what Europe is. Yeah. No, absolutely. And um... Can you say a little bit about Rousseau's status at this point? Because it becomes a guiding kind of thinker. And Rousseau then is, you know, I think for Americans, we don't quite know the status of Rousseau in French culture of the, we know the second discourse, we know mm -hmm. the origin of social yeah. contract. It's, um, well, in fact, the, the, the Rousseau for the Vichos is one of the second discourse. And, uh, you know, with uh, that, uh, the quotation you just read. And, you know, so, in Lévi-Strauss, there is a, a demographic. The real pessimism of Lévi-Strauss is demographic, which means about the increase of the population on the globe. For Lévi-Strauss, the myth, and that's what he discovers in the Amazon, he discovers a small society where there is only closeness. And not only... Everybody knows everyone, but there is not enough member of the society for there to be a hierarchy. And that's also part of, you know, what the big uh, deconstructive attack of Derrida against Lévi-Strauss. There is no writing. Everything you can, and you don't need to use your cell phone, everybody can be uttered. And there is no relationship to absence. And therefore, also, the conflict is not the, the motor of the society. So the Rousseauism in Lévi-Strauss is the, the Rousseauism of those very small societies. And I think that for Lévi-Strauss, if you pass 1,000 or 10,000, it's inferno. And, and, you know, there is, in Tristotropic, there is, there are two places where it travels. So there is Brazil, which is, you know, kind of Edenic uh, place. But he goes also to Pakistan. And in Pakistan, he discovers the crowd, the population, you know, the overcrowding of the valleys. And there is a kind of phobia, you know, of that overpopulation. Well, and he says about um, the Indian subcontinent, it's a very disturbing chapter, two chapters really, mm. where he talks about yeah. markets and populations, and he says, yeah. for thousands and thousands of years, people have stripped the land of all the resources. He said then they had some kind of <laughs> arrangement, vegetarianism, to leave the animals in peace. And then what you just said, when there's more people than one could survey by knowing them, 
hierarchies get introduced. And he says, this is just the way the planet is going to work, that mm -hmm. some people will be claiming they are superior and mm -hmm. some people will not be able to do that. Very clearly, it's Europeans who claim that in his mind. He said, yeah. Europeans have claimed that. He says this, and then he says this incredibly shocking thing in a way. And he says, even what's happening in Europe, what happened in Europe with the Holocaust, he mm. said, it's just a way in which society will inevitably mm. sort people into those who belong and those people who shouldn't exist. Mm. And he gets this out of, and he says in that same chapter, he says, there is no such thing as freedom. Mm. It's a very Marxist yeah. moment. Yeah. I'll read this quote to you, and it's, yeah. it's a very interesting quote. He says, uh, freedom is neither a legal invention nor philosophical conquest, not the cherished possession of civilization more valid than others because they alone have been able to create or preserve it, which is yeah. a real direct attack on Europe, mm -hmm. the idea of freedom yeah. of America, probably to North America. But it is the outcome of an objective relationship between the individual and the space he occupies between the consumer and the resources at its disposal. And it is far from certain that abundance of resources can make up for a lack of space and that a rich but overpopulated society is not in danger of being poisoned by its own density, mm. etc. Yeah. So when he talks about this question of population and sort of what does he learn from Rousseau? What is Rousseau's answer to this? I and mean, this, this is written 200 years after Rousseau, or 250 years. And there is something, as you said, it's... That's, Today we read this, we have many more billions of people more on the planet. I mean, he doesn't learn from Rousseau. He loves Rousseau to present you know, his own dream. And, you know, when Rousseau, when he describes us, you know, he says, maybe they never existed. You know, maybe. And somehow, Levi-Strauss says, well, they exist and I saw one. And maybe the last one, but I saw it. And I think from Rousseau, he gets a model which entails somehow he has a condemnation of the progressist myth, uh, the progressist historical myth of what's called Western civilization. Yeah. It's not just a critique of the West. It's also a way to say the only way we can even critique ourselves is by studying all these other people. Because he says until then he doesn't even have a position from which to realize what the West is doing. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of productive alienation from yourself. It's not just the West is terrible, we distribute our garbage around the world. But by encountering other people, we can, we can understand maybe what we are. And that we've been um, taken with this idea of progress. We've been seduced by our own fantasy. Yeah, I mean, in that sense, there is in Levi-Strauss the idea of an uh, so-called unconscious choice, you know, maybe a little bit like what Sartre calls le choix originel, you know, like when he describes those societies as societies who refused history, who made the decision, there was no vote, you know, do you vote for <laughs> history or for myth, you know, the, but there is a decision, there is the idea that, you know, we stay together, we stay in that community. We don't want to send letters to the people, you know, we talk to. We just want to talk to them. And, and there is, you know, which is the basis of Derrida's criticism, you know, a kind of very almost mechanical association of writing and power. That writing goes together with making lists, uh, list of belongings, uh, writing, you know, like Writing, writing check, writing wills, right. you know, writing is 
linked to accumulation. And Lévi-Strauss called very often those uh, non-European the société sans écriture, uh, society without writings. Uh, and it is like if those societies, they, they chose not to write. They decided not to write. You know, there is like the scene in Plato, you know, where the god offers to the king the possibility of writing and suddenly, you know, he's totally afraid about the consequences. Yeah. And, um, and all that, uh, well, Lévi-Strauss is totally taken into that, you know, phonocentrism. Uh, yeah. He says it's a choice, whereas Derrida says, first of all, it isn't a choice. And Levi-Strauss wants to say, as you said, writing is for us considered the fundamental strata of culture. And he says, when there's a chief who imitates Levi-Strauss writing, so he writes down things and the chief makes some lines on a piece of paper, looks at it, and then looks at Levi-Strauss and they're bartering. So they're negotiating in this relationship. And he says he's understood immediately that this is power that now everybody looks at him and thinks he knows how to write something down. He can remember it later. It allows him to control people who are not present. And he goes right away, he says, and this will can become the institution of enslavement, of exploitation. Mm -hmm. It's more like in a different edition. It's like Conrad or Kafka or Walter Benjamin who all say the administration becomes its own mechanism and mm -hmm. is dehumanized. Mm -hmm. As wonderful as it is that we have records and all these mm -hmm. things and memories and history, mm -hmm. It is as terrifying to know that people who are not here are registered. Mm -hmm. How does Levi Strauss respond to the critique by Derrida? It's, I mean, these are these are kind of momentous, <laughs> gigantic battles. But what does he does he really think this is a valid critique? <laughs> I know that he wrote because Derrida first published it in a journal, which was called I think Le Cahier pour l'analyse, and Levi Strauss sent a letter after that say, saying something like. I think it's very rare that a critic uh, behaves like a bear, but that was what was done by Monsieur Derrida. <laughs> so he doesn't take it as a real, he said, you don't understand what I'm doing and you missed the point. He's, so I think that he would say, <laughs> I don't know if he did, uh, but it's, you know, I left philosophy and I am not going to go back to it because all those, you know, in intricate uh, textual uh, construction or deconstruction. Is, uh, I think he, so he didn't answer, he didn't answer into any uh, any of the arguments. Yeah. This becomes a kind of theme in the, I mean, Tristropic is written in the 50s and he writes this mythology is four volumes. And then in the 70s and 80s, he becomes less and less patient with what becomes a big thing for a while, deconstructive criticism, mm -hmm. kind of very word play, which mm -hmm. he considers all verbal yeah. games. He said they don't have mm -hmm. meaning. He's becoming a bit less central, although his impact is incredible. So in some ways, you can't imagine Roland Barthes or Foucault mm -hmm. or Deleuze or anybody without him, really, right? He leaves his legacy, although he's not quite, he's alive. And, I mean, he lives almost 100 years. But, no, I think... I think he lived on 100. It's no? 100 or right before he turns yeah, 100, yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that, yeah. I mean, there is a, a field where Lévi-Strauss' importance has been major, which is uh, classic studies, you know, and with, uh, I mean, the most important name is Jean-Pierre Vernon. And, um, and I think all the, that very, you know, strong uh, French uh, classicist scholarship Oh, there's a lot to Levi Strauss. 
Because somehow, you know, what Vernon did is to consider Greece as a place of shifting from mythos to logos. You know, a shift into, into writing, into civilization, into, and, um, and the proximity of the myth in all the philosophy in Athens has been put by Vernon into a kind of Levi-Straussian perspective, like mm. a shift from nature to culture and here from, yeah, from mythos to logos. And that's been a very important legacy. I don't know, you know today, anthropology in France, I don't really know what it is. I mean, you know, anthropology was linked to colonialism. You know, you had to go, you know, you mentioned Leris, you know, it, it had, the fieldwork was always connected. You know, it was very difficult, for example, to go fieldwork in a non-colonial area, you know. And, uh, right. and uh, so I don't know where it is, what's the status of Lévi-Strauss uh, among anthropologists today. But the, I think the, the classicists are, you know, Marcel Détienne. I mean, they're all very, very brilliant. The other thing I've seen is there's a, an interesting turn that who knows what Levi Strauss really thought of this, but what we call post-colonial criticism, which is, let's say, in one way, it's to understand the kind of exploitation and imposition of a certain way of thinking on the non-Western world, also a way to think about how did these civilizations make sense of themselves in their own right on their own terms, not as derivatives of ours, not as weaker versions. So that Levi-Strauss' work allowed people to use this Western theory to say, how did all these people make sense of their own world? And he said, on equal terms. He said, someone living in the rainforest in the Amazon makes sense of the universe mm. in ways that we make sense. We think we're very sophisticated. We have lots of books. And we talk about lots of things and remember things. And they are as sophisticated. It's just very different. But underlying it is an attempt to make sense of these fundamental oppositions. Mm, Earth, yeah. sky, man, woman, life, death, all these things inside, outside, these kind of structuring things. Mm. So I think it opened up a lot of things for people. And the oppositions is really interesting that he says we all think in these ways. They are how thought is patterned before we even make conscious choices and decisions. Yeah, I mean, part of yeah, making sense of themselves. But here you still have that dichotomy in in, in Lévi-Strauss. So La Pensée Sauvage starts by you know describing the knowledge that those myths entail. You know, like an amazing knowledge of you know the smallest variety of flowers, you know, the, all those kind of the concrete detail. detail. Mm -hmm. And his question is, how come? What that knowledge is not made to use, is not productive. It is, they know, it's incredible, you know, they, they have a name for everything that happens in the sky. Or in, and they don't, you know, there are no, it's not linked to a Promethean, Promethean uh, ambition. So there is the idea that it is a knowledge which, which is essentially aesthetic, aesthetic in both mm. senses, because, you know, it is a knowledge of the, sensi of the, of the sensible, of the, of the qualitative, and which survives in the Western world in art. There is that idea, you know, that the la pensée sauvage 
has some kind of uh, reservations, which is uh, which are the art galleries. Uh, but essentially, the opposition is the opposition between an aesthetic relationship to the world, which is feeling differences, but no, not putting them uh, to task for uh, mm. any technical mm -hmm. project. Mm -hmm. And the engineer, you know, that's, that's where Levi-Strauss makes that very, you know, beautiful uh, distinction between the engineer and the bricoleur. How do you call it, bricoleur? Tinkering? Like tinkering, yeah. Tinkering, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Putting together whatever yeah. fits together, yeah. Yeah, 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 you know, you... <laughs> Just make it work with whatever you have at hand. You know, yeah, yeah, you, you use a spoon to, <laughs> to, to dig in your garden, yeah. So, yes, every society has a sense of itself, but there is nevertheless that fundamental difference between the Western mm -hmm, project, mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, becoming, you know, as Descartes said, maître possesseur de la, maître dominateur de la, de la nature, and the Indian from Amazonia, who's just there, you know, perceiving differences, you know, can, can affi we, affinities and differences. Can we stay for this for a moment? When you said this is the, the Western idea of the the subjugation of nature for our own purposes. And then, as you said a little while ago, we live in a time right now where there are really interesting debates, I think, very urgent ones, from ecology, from school kids to people who philosophize, who say the Enlightenment project is fantastic, progress is good, things have gotten better. So we have big people writing this, and then we have other people, Yuval Harari or something, writing these grand histories. And you said much earlier, Levi-Strauss was not a, an optimistic person in a sense. But there's still something incredibly invigorating about these books. They're not leave you feeling there's no way. It's very strange because you leave mm. the books and you don't think there's no way out. You think, at least I can recognize something. Because mm -hmm. otherwise you have these false options. You say either it has to go on like this. We have to just build more stuff, exploit nature and adjust at the margins. Or we have to become mm -hmm. people dwelling in the forest. Mm -hmm. For him, these would have been idiotic choices, right? So there's no choice like that in any mm -hmm. case. So I wonder how it could be, how you think about it today, especially when, when I talk to my students, they all, many of them care really greatly about how to move forward with this rampant neo-capitalist order. <laughs> so that's, that's a good question, a difficult question. But I would, and you know, I, um, I don't want to be more Levi-Strauss than that, that I've been, <laughs> but just thinking about, uh, you know, what we were just talking about, Maybe there is a kind of aesthetic beauty in reading Lévi-Strauss, in seeing maybe reading is not simply a useful, mm -hmm. you know, maybe the thinking, it's not, it's not bad to have sometimes intellectual experiences which are not simply linked to a productive project. Mm -hmm. And rereading, you know, I read some Levi-Strauss yesterday. Yes, there is a there is a pleasure, a, a pleasure of a beauty of intelligence, a beauty of which it may be it may be useful, it may not be useful, you know. That, but there is nevertheless the beauty of seeing the kind of the juggling, you know, of, of those concepts in Levi-Strauss. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting that a lot of these histories now of. Enlightenment philosophy and these big questions, have we 
done the right thing, the wrong thing. They instrumentalize all of thinking. Mm. They say yeah. it does yeah. Rousseau lead yeah. to, yeah. you know, Kant lead to, you know, uh, Jefferson need lead to yeah. Nietzsche lead to the disaster or lead to some kind of redemption. Yeah. But there's no way to think. It just is thinking. Yeah. And it right. may not have an outcome, just like many other yeah. things in life we do. Yeah. I mean, we don't. So in some ways, Levi Strauss will be the one where we... Yeah, I mean, uh, you said, know, pleasure, pleasure is not yeah. always useful. It's well, not, said, yeah. We don't just eat yeah. to be satisfied. We yeah. eat also because there's pleasure, right? Yeah. We don't just talk to mm-hmm. communicate. Yeah. All these things, I think he alerts you to all of these things. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. why he has these chapters about the sunset, which he says in a way, I just wrote it down. Try to capture something <laughs> on the boat. Yeah. Yes, on the boat. Yeah, and, uh, on, yes. on the on the how do you say it? ocean liner. Yeah, I mean, of course, Levi Strauss does not answer questions which are fundamental, and I think it would be difficult to put him to task to precisely answer a lot of our questions. And if he were going to answer, that he would, the answer would be very pessimistic. But I think essentially, Levi Strauss does not want to be committed to any ideological project. And the book has a very um, strange ending. It's very famous, I'm sure, it's in, in France, right? Yeah. Because he says, yet I exist, not of course as an individual, since in this respect, I'm merely the stake a stake perpetually at risk in the struggle between another society made up of several thousand million nerve cells lodged in the antel of my skull and my body, which serves as its robot. So he takes it back to this cellular level Absolutely, yeah. of him, which is, to me, there's a, there are other moments under the sort of um, Primo Levi at a very moving moment. In, hmm. um, uh, he writes a book called The Periodic Table. Hmm. And he says, I'm only the lid scratching on the on the paper and the trace of me is this tiny scribble mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so it, you read this book about survival and about the greatest catastrophe the holocaust he survived and what culture does for him and then he says i'm only these particles of lead on a paper mm-hmm. so levi strauss is only the mass of cells and then he, at the end when he says fond farewell to savages and explorations which he says in the beginning i don't like explorers i don't like travel mm-hmm. yeah. After 415 pages, he's also sad. He opens the book and says, I don't even like doing this. And then he said, and as you said, you don't learn anything in that way, but you have deepened some experience. So the he's, end, yeah. He's a, a big fantasy, which is very positivistic, which is precisely that the first person does not exist. There is a direct, you know, the same way as the myths are transforming into each other, they are, that everything is a transformation of, you know, a translation, you know, that the language communicates. The ultimate transformation is that of the structure of the cosmos and his brain with nothing in between. And uh, I mean, it's, I know that ending has been, uh, you know, the, the the Foucault's theme of the death of man is of course, directly connected mm. to the end of the of, of Tristetropica. So and what you just said, that man, we don't exist. In some ways, it's not there's one person here and I make sense of the world, but I'm already changing or I'm already in a larger change. I'm already part of something. So that for him, I think, can be very beautiful. It can also be very disturbing if you want to hold on to the sense of I control everything. I don't think Levi Strauss would say I am. You know, I think that's also the literary force of Tristotropic, which is 
the autobiography of someone who does not believe that there is a first person and doesn't believe for scientific or pseudo-scientific reason. You know, there will be a, one day, you know, the brain biologist and the cosmos specialist will, in fact, be the most familiar conversation in the world. You know, the linguist, all that will be gone. You know, there will be simply a kind of uh, direct, you know, uh, communication between the cell and the cosmos. I don't know what they are going to say to each other, right, but uh, right. yeah. yeah. No, that's a nice ending. I like this. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, thank you, Denis. <laughs> well, my pleasure.